Crispin here on the North Shore Vineyard Church audio podcast. Today on the podcast, we have a message from February 9th, and this finds us back in the Gospel of John after taking a couple of months off. And uh, we're going to be picking up the Gospel of John in John chapter 14. We're going to be looking at one of the most famous sayings of Jesus. And I really believe this. There, there's so much in this that uh, is just foundational to uh, what it means to follow Jesus and really what it means for us as a church. So uh, there's some real good stuff here. So without further ado, we're going to go ahead and head to the talk, North Shore Vineyard Church, downtown Covington. Stay up to date with us at northshorevineyard.org. Thanks for listening. To set this up before we get into the passage today, this is about the first half of the Gospel of John is is really focused on the public ministry of Jesus. Jesus healing the blind people, uh, running off of the accusers of the adulterous woman, uh, speaking with the Samaritan woman at the well, turning water into wine. We We see all these kind of public ministry things of Jesus going on. But... Probably a third or more of the, uh, of the Gospel of John is focused in on this one place where we've been the last uh, few months when we looked in the Gospel of John. It's just the meal with Jesus and his disciples before Jesus goes to the cross. So we see Jesus not in public ministry now. We see Jesus up close and personal. It's, it's, it's intimate. Jesus is taking everything he's done with his disciples for three years and he's leaving them with, this is what it's all about, guys. And so they're celebrating Passover uh, dinner in this meal. It's Passover week in Jerusalem. Jerusalem would have been packed like, like New Orleans during Jazz Fest or Mardi Gras. And, and, and Jesus has been welcomed in earlier the week. People welcomed him as the Messiah. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Things are looking good. Things are exciting. And so Jesus is celebrating the Passover with his disciples. And, and in this Passover meal... Jesus does a few things that that are very fundamental to what his whole ministry is about. The first is that he introduces communion. This is my body broken for you. This is my blood shed for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And I've said on many occasions, when I, say, I, I think when Jesus said, do this in remembrance of me, he wasn't just saying celebrate communion. He's saying, lay down your life. For one another, the way that I laid down my life, the same way that, that my body is laid down for you, you do that for one another. Why do I say that? Because he also did something else during uh, the Passover meal. He gets up in the middle of dinner, he takes off his outer robe and puts a towel around him, and he goes around from one disciple to the next and washes their feet. Now, this would have been the lowliest job that you could do in a Jew. Like, there was nothing lower than this job. In their, in their culture at that time. This was a job that a self-respecting uh, Jew would not even do for another Jew. You know, I mean, a Jew wouldn't wash the feet of another Jew. They saved that for pagan slaves. And here, Jesus, in the middle of the meal, where he is the honored, esteemed teacher, rabbi, he gets down and gets his hands dirty. He washes his disciples' feet. And when he gets done with that, he says, what I've done for you... You guys need to do this for one another. Again, I don't think Jesus was saying that we just need to wash each other's feet all the time. 
I think Jesus is pointing to the reality that we need to serve one another. That we don't grab for power. We don't coerce people. We don't try to manipulate people and control people and, and force people into doing things that we want. Rather, we take the low road. We serve. We, we, we walk in humility. And then it's in this context that Jesus sums up his whole ministry. He says, the way that I've loved you guys... You love each other now. This is the command I give you. Love one another the way that I have loved you. That's it. I mean, you can sum the whole ministry of Jesus up with that. Love one another the way that I have loved you. So we have all these, like, amazing things that Jesus is demonstrating and saying in this moment with both symbols and actions and words. But there's also kind of this foreboding sense around the evening, some kind of negative energy that's happening because Jesus in the midst of the meal has also said, one of you guys is going to betray me. And we know that Judas walks out of the room and, and goes off to betray Jesus. Jesus keeps talking about going to the cross and dying and the disciples are like, what's all this about? And so we can tell in this passage that Jesus is beginning to experience some anxiety. He says, my heart's troubled within me as I see what, what's coming. But I know this is the reason why I'm here. And you can bet if Jesus is feeling the pressure of this moment, the disciples are truly feeling it. And so I say all that to say that this brings us to John chapter 14. And Jesus seeks to comfort his disciples, to tell them, look, you know, guys, it's going to get pretty bad around here. Chances are, tomorrow evening at this time, you're going to wonder if you wasted your whole life on following me because it's going to come to a brutal and bloody, violent end at the hands of the, the Romans and the Jewish high priest. It's going to look awful. And you are going to want to second guess everything you've done with me the last three years. Let me give you some words of comfort in this moment. So Jesus says this, don't let your hearts be troubled in verse 1. Trust God and trust me too. There's plenty of room to live in my father's house. If that wasn't the case, I'd have told you, wouldn't I? I'm going to get a place ready for you. And if I do go and get a place ready for you, I will come back and take you to be with me so that you can be there where I am. You know the way where I'm going after all. Uh, actually, master, said Thomas. We don't know where you're going, so how can we know the way? I am the way, Jesus replied, and the truth and the life. Nobody comes to the Father except through me. If you had known me, you would have known my Father. From now on, you do know him. You have seen him. Uh, just show us the Father then, Master, said Philip to Jesus, and that will be good enough for us. Philip, have I been with you so long, such a long time and still you don't know me? Anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Don't you believe that I'm in the Father and the Father is in me? The words I'm speaking to you, I'm not speaking on my own initiative. It is the Father who lives within me, who is doing his own works. You must trust in me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me. If not, then trust because of all the things you have seen done. So first off, Jesus, in comforting his disciples, he says, in my father's house, there's plenty of room for you guys. I'm going to prepare a place for you. Now, 
it's, it's interesting, this phrase, my father's house. It's only something that Jesus has, has, the, the, he, Jesus has only used this phrase one other time in the Gospels. And that was when he was referring to the temple. Now, in Jewish life, uh, the, the temple was the one place that the Jewish people believed that heaven and earth met. And so Jesus hints at a new city, a new world, a new house. Heaven and earth will meet again when God renews the whole world. And at that time, there will be room for everyone. He's going away, and they're going to be tempted to think that, that everything is just a waste. They're going to be faced with doubts, and Jesus is saying, don't let your hearts be troubled. We got this. He's going away, but it's for their benefit. Now, these words of Jesus, they're not just for the disciples. They, these are these words that, that I think really speak to us today. I have done a number of funerals and memorial services in the past few years. And I have pulled out this passage at every funeral I've ever done because I think it's got some of the, 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 the most comforting words of Jesus. That one day... We will be in a place where death doesn't have the last word. One day, we will be in a place where there is no disease, no decay. There's not all this brokenness. Things are set right. Actually, the Apostle John, who wrote the Gospel of John, he, he talks at the end of Revelation that, that one day there will be a new heaven, new earth, and that, 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 that the people of God will be the temple of God. God will dwell in her midst. And I think that this is exactly what Jesus is alluding to with his language. In my Father's house is room for everyone. Because see, you and I need to know that there is something more than this. But even more than that, we need to know the way to get there. And this brings us to the next part. Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Nobody comes to the Father except through me. Now, have you noticed that things have changed a lot in the last 20 years? I know I'm starting to sound like an old guy now, but man, when I was young, uh, things, are, things are just like changing. I mean, who would have even thought 10 years ago like that you could have this little device that you'd walk around and you'd, you'd be connected to all your friends and have like a whole computer in your pocket? Um, okay, I'm really sounding old now, okay? Um, <laughs> Well, we live in a time where the world is getting smaller, isn't it? You know, 100 years ago, 150 years ago, something could happen in China, and folks in America wouldn't hear about it for months. Now, something can happen in a remote village in Papua New Guinea, and within five minutes, we've got people tweeting about it. <laughs> the world is getting smaller. Now, part of this is exciting. I, I love to travel. Man, I, I, I've, I've visited countries in Southeast Asia, India, Central America, Europe. I love just experiencing other cultures. I, I especially love experiencing other people's food. Um, I, 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 love, I love listening to music from different parts of the world. And, and so one of my favorite things now is I'll, I'll be at home listening to Spotify or Pandora on my computer. And I'm like, you know, I've got a hankering for some... Nigerian funk music from 1972. And I can find it within about 30 seconds. Or I want to hear some kind of Brazilian thing from the 60s. And I can go 
find it within a matter of seconds. I don't have to go to a record store. I don't have to do research. The world is getting smaller. But as the world gets smaller, it's also causing everybody to bump into people that are very different from them. It causes us to see people as actually, wow, you know, there's really real people that go through the same things. They may be different religions. They may be different economic backgrounds. They may be in a completely different situation. And so there has been this very much in the, in the last few decades, there's been a rise of, of, of pluralistic thinking. And pluralistic thinking is just basically that it, it's, it's the belief that all religions are really the same. Man, it doesn't matter if you just, you know, you can take the Buddhist path or the Hindu path or Islam or your own religion or, or atheism. All paths will ultimately lead to God and it just doesn't matter. Just do whatever you want. And that sounds perfectly in, in people who are growing up in a very pluralistic world. It's just like, yeah, that, that makes sense. But what you're really claiming, saying if you claim that there are that all religions are the same, is that none of them are more than distant echoes or distorted images of reality. You're saying that reality, God, the divine, is remote and unknowable. And that neither Judah, Jesus nor Buddha or Moses or Krishna can give us direct access to the divine. They all provide a way towards the foothills of the mountain, but they don't get us to the summit. You know what the Christian story says, beginning with these words of Jesus? Jesus says, look, I am. If you want to know what God's like, look at me. I imagine this thing in my theological mind, or semi-theological half-baked uh, brain, uh, <laughs> You know, in the first part of John, John chapter 1, the prologue to the gospel of John, John, it, it sounds a lot like Genesis. Jesus, you know, John says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and, and through the Word, everything was created, and, and the Word became flesh and, and stepped into our world, moved into our neighborhood, and we beheld His glory, the, the, the one-of-a-kind glory of the only begotten of God. Here's the way I see that situation unfolding in my head I see the Trinity hanging out up in heaven Father Son and Holy Spirit and they're looking down on earth and all of man's attempts to connect with gods and goddesses and make religions and they looking down at all this even Judaism by the way they're looking down at how far God's own people the Jewish people have have gotten off track and, and finally to say look do I have to come down there and actually show you what I'm like so you can get it and so Jesus like, Pops, I'll do this. And Jesus steps down into our world to show us once and for all what God actually looks at. God is not loving us from a distance. He's not some abstract, mysterious force. He looks like Jesus. He acts like Jesus. Jesus is not like, you know, the good guy and God's the bad guy. You know, no, Jesus says, I'm the same as my father. If you've seen me, you've seen the father. And that's why I hear at this church, you know, you're not going to hear a lot of debates about, you know, creation versus evolution or stuff. Because, you know, honestly, I think the whole point of the Bible is Jesus. Like, like that's the point. 
We, we don't start in the Bible with Genesis. We start with Jesus. We don't, because if you start any other place and try to, try to fit Jesus into that, you, you mess up. We start with the central truth that Jesus is God incarnate, that he has stepped into our world to reveal to us the love of the Father, to show us what God is like. So we don't have to go grasping about in the dark, trying to figure out, you know, is this God or not, that that we have a representation. We've seen Jesus. We've seen the way God acts. We see the way God acts. And God doesn't act with arrogance. He doesn't act with coercion. He's the God that loves his enemies. He's the God that gets down and washes his friend's feet. So in one sense, this may be considered the most arrogant claim of Christianity. Like, how how arrogant to say that you're the only way to God. Like, that's the only way. I, okay. But the truth is, there's nothing arrogant about Jesus, is there? Nothing. Jesus doesn't do one stinking arrogant thing in the whole Bible. He doesn't act the way the gods of men act, which ought to be a great indicator that maybe he's the real deal because he's something that we couldn't conjure up. He's something that we couldn't think up. We couldn't think up something that great. It's good news. Don't come with a set, fixed idea of who God is and try to fit Jesus into that. Look at Jesus, the Jesus who wept at the tomb of his friend. The Jesus who washed his disciples' feet, and you will see the one true God. Jesus looks exactly like God. God looks exactly like Jesus. Paul would put it this way in first in, in Colossians 1, 15 through 19. The Son, Jesus, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth. Visible and and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything he might have the supremacy. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him, and through him to reconcile to himself All things, whether things on earth or those in heaven, by making peace through his own blood shed on the cross. The claim of Christ is not arrogance. It's the claims of a God who is not arrogant. I think that most of the time, the reason people reject the exclusive claims of Jesus is not Jesus. It's the representation of Jesus in the church. I, I love reading history, but I, I, I reading church history, man, it's depressing sometimes. I was reading some stuff the other day about actual, I mean, there's multiple historical accounts of, of Christians during the Crusades who came into parts of the Holy Land and, and, and killed men, women, and child, and, and actually even ate Muslims. I mean, there's reports of cannibalism, and they did this while proclaiming Jesus Christ. There's a problem. Jesus didn't once demand anybody to follow him. He didn't once walk into Jerusalem and say, bow down, I'm the God of the universe. He didn't do that. 
How did Jesus show us God? How did Jesus show us what God was up to? He showed us by laying his life down, by serving, by humility. This is what God is like. I don't blame people for, for, for thinking that the claims of Christianity are arrogant because I think Christians have been so arrogant and coercive and, and, and forcing people you got to believe this, or we're just going to boycott you, or we're going to run you out of here. Like, where does that come from? Is that what Jesus did? did? I mean, do you see Jesus doing that? No. The answer is no. <laughs> Eugene Peterson, one of my favorite books he wrote, he wrote a book called The Contemplative Pastor. He says, Jesus is the way as well as the truth. The way the gospel is conveyed is as much a part of the kingdom as the truth presented. Why are pastors expert on the truth and dropouts on the way? Ouch. Hmm. Talking about pastors here. That's true, though. I get so tired sometimes. I, I keep threatening to stop Facebook, but... <laughs> it seems to me like every little, I mean, every other week there's some kind of situation that pops up and everybody starts battling about their knowledge about the Bible and this and that and this issue and that issue. Truth is, you can know the Bible backwards and forwards. The Pharisees did. And you can be totally opposed to the purposes of God. The, the, the truth of God cannot be divorced from the way of God. <laughs> you can't separate the truth of God from the way of God. It's the same thing. And so, so to, to move in truth without moving in humility is really to, to make void the truth that you know. It's not the path to life. It, Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. If you want to have the life, you've got to merge truth. With the way. And I'm going to tell you, if you start following the ways of Jesus, be prepared to look stupid. Be prepared to look foolish and weak. I can understand why most people in the church don't like to embrace this stuff because you look like other people are winning. It looks like foolishness. You know, this uh, book that we're going to do our Holy Smoke group on. Um, David and Goliath. This is a spoiler alert. This is one of the stories in there, but I, I, I was just revisiting it to a day. And this book was not, Malcolm Gladwell, by the way, I mean, he's written a book called The Tipping Point, Blink, Outliers, a um, lot of good books, Be New York Times bestsellers. He's written for all these different things. He, he, he runs in very secular parts of the world. I have never thought by reading any of his books that he was a Christian, and he wasn't. But in writing this latest book, I found out after I got done with it that uh, in doing his research of this book, he, just, he kept bumping into God. <laughs> and there was one thing that finally pushed him over the edge, and he returned to the faith of his childhood. And it was a story about an, a woman named William, Wilma Dirksen. Wilma Dirksen was a, a, a Mennonite woman up in Canada who 30 years before Gladwell entered, interviewed her, uh, her and her husband had... Their daughter, their, their teenage daughter, I think she was 13 or 14 years old, had been kidnapped, sexually assaulted, and, um, and, and, and killed. And I want to read to you 
a bit of their story. 30 years before, her teenage daughter Candace had disappeared on her way home from school. The city had launched the largest manhunt in its history, and after a week, Candace's body was found in a hut a quarter of a mile from the Dirksons' house. Her hands and feet had been bound. Wilma and her husband Cliff were called into the local police station and told the news. Candace's funeral was the next day, followed by a news conference. Virtually every news outlet in that province was there because Candace's disappearance had gripped the city. How do you feel about whoever did this to Candace, a reporter asked the Dirksons. And the husband Cliff replied, we would like to know the person or persons who, who they are so we could share hopefully a love that seems to be missing in these people's lives. What? I just need to go repent and just become a Christian all over again. In the midst, a, a week after their, their, their daughter's body's found, the, the first thing they come out and say when interviewed, we would like to know who the person or persons are so we could share, hopefully, a love that seems to be missing in these people's lives. Wilma, the wife, responded next. Our main concern was to find Candace. We found her. She went on and she says, I can't say that at this point I forgive this person. But the stress was on the phrase, at this point. She went on. We have all done something dreadful in our lives or all have felt the urge to. Malcolm Gladwell, sitting in the room with this woman, in Canada, just interviewing her, and, and he, he, he bumps into God. He's just like, whatever this woman's doing, I want that. And this is a guy who had researched all kinds of situations in this book, you know. I mean, things from World War II to the, 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 the fights between the Irish Republican Army and the British, the Civil Rights Movement. He'd been looking into all these things. He kept bumping into Jesus, but this was the final thing that just pushed him over the edge. And he returned to faith. Now, what is interesting is that Gladwell contrasts this story with the story of someone else, uh, a guy out in California whose daughter had been uh, murdered in Fresno back around 1996. This, this father was in a very similar situation, but instead of, 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 of walking down the path that, that Wilma walked down, this guy, uh, as soon as the body was found, he made it a personal uh, thing. He was going to change the laws. This was never going to happen to another girl again. And so this guy got consumed with what, what had happened to his daughter. And he began to push for legislation which became known as Three Strikes You're Out, uh, which was just repealed about two years ago in California. Because they found that with the Three Strikes You're Out law, in spite of the motivation to try to curb violent crime, that it was actually causing more crime in the long run. It was actually creating more dis desperate situations, particularly for people in inner city communities, than, than things were before that. What's interesting to note is that Malcolm Gladwell, he had met this guy and Miss Wilma. And he said when he talked to this guy, it was a different thing. He said he got stuck back in 1996. He got stuck. And his desire for, for justice was, was, was just so consuming that he lost his, his marriage, his business, 
And he said still to this day, like the guy is poisoned by it. Now I share both of these stories because as Gladwell sees it, Wilma, the, the only thing that makes her difference is she saw where the true power lies. See, our world thinks if you forgive somebody, that's just condoning evil. You're just going to let, you know, bad guys are just going to win in the end. That's just, that's stupid. That's silly. That's foolish. Why would you love your enemies? That's just stupid. I mean, what kind of, what was Jesus on? That doesn't make sense. But the Apostle Paul actually goes on in his letter to the Corinthians. He says, the foolishness of God is wiser than the wisdom of men. And the weakness of God is stronger than the strength of men. What seems foolish and weak to us is the very power of God. It's the way of Jesus. And I'm telling you, in this room, I know there are people, you, you, you've been hurt. You've been disappointed. Uh, maybe you face things that, that we would just be blown away to hear what you've gone through. But the truth is, if you hold on to that, if you fight for revenge, if you let that thing consume you, the destruction that happened to you will be exponential through you to others. But if you endeavor to get on the path that Jesus had, and look, you know, Wilma, I love, I love her honesty here. It's like, I haven't forgiven him yet. But by the time Malcolm Gladwell had met met with her she had released him she let him go and you know what she got healed God touched that thing not only that she's making a real difference in her community for girls that are facing this kinds of stuff see our efforts at justice will always be poisoned if, if they don't come from a place of love and forgiveness they don't come from a place of humility. No matter how right we are, they will eat our lunch and the lunch of other people. Jesus is the truth, but he's also the way. Jesus is the truth, but he's also the way. My desire is that we would be people who don't just know the right answers, but they would, we would walk in the ways of Jesus. Because you know when you walk the ways of Jesus. It may look weak. It may look stupid. It may look foolish. But you're on the way to knowing what true life is. And I think that's something that Malcolm Gladwell bumped into. He bumped into a lady that has been through horrible stuff. That I don't even, I, I don't even want to think about anything like that happening to me. Or to somebody I love. And yet, here she is 30 years later, filled up with the very life of God. So much that it just breaks through all of Malcolm Gladwell's secular unbelief. And he's just like, I'm done. This, I've encountered God. I just want to read this passage one more time. I want us to just get quiet and listen to it. Wherever you're at, we can find the hope of Christ in this. Why don't you just close your eyes and get quiet.
Don't let your hearts be troubled. Trust God and trust me too. There is plenty of room to live in my father's house. If that wasn't the case, I'd have told you, wouldn't I? I'm going to get a place ready for you. And if I do go and get a place ready for you, I will come back and take you to be with me so that you can be there where I am. You know the way where I'm going after all. Actually, Master, said Thomas, we don't know where you're going, so how can we know the way? I am the way, replied Jesus, and the truth and the life. Nobody comes to the Father except through me. If you had known me, you would have known my Father. And from now on, you do know him. You have seen him. Just show us the Father then, Master, said Philip to Jesus, and that will be good enough for us. Have I been with you for such a long time, Philip, and still you don't know me? Anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Don't you believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words I'm speaking to you, I'm not speaking on my own initiative. It's the Father who lives in me, who is doing his own works. You must trust me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me. If not, then trust because of all the things you have seen done. Jesus, we thank you this morning that you show us what God is like. Lord, that you are the perfect representation of the Father. God, I pray a blessing on your people this morning that you would give us the grace to walk in the ways of Jesus, to live in the truth of Jesus, to bear the life of Jesus. God, I pray this morning particularly for those who may be struggling with, with hurt and unforgiveness. God, I pray uh, the, the, the empowering of your Holy Spirit to let go and trust you, Lord, to get on that path this morning. God, let us be a people that don't just know stuff about you but who walk in your ways, God. It's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen.